Hello, everyone. I'm Esther Pan Sloan, Head of Partnerships, Policy, and Communications at the United Nations Capital Development Fund. Welcome to Season 2 of Capital Musings, UNCDF's podcast, where we are focusing on fresh ideas and new innovations that serve our mandate to make finance work for the poor in the world's least developed countries. You can find our Capital Musings podcast on Apple, Spotify, or our website, www.uncdf.org. Today, we're glad to be speaking with Eva Yazhari, CEO of the Beyond Capital Fund, co-host of the Beyond Capital podcast, founder of the Conscious Investor magazine, and author of a new book, The Good Your Money Can Do. Eva, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Esther. It's, It's great to be here. Please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What did you study? And what led you to start Beyond Capital? Yeah, well, I grew up in New York City and was born born and raised there. And uh, I think that that definitely gave me a unique perspective on the world. I ended up studying math at, at Barnard. So again, ended up in New York City. I think it was, it was very much so, I think, a part of who I really saw myself as and still do as a New Yorker. And for me, math was an offshoot of almost going into pre-med. So I'd like to say that I missed my calling as a doctor, but I really enjoyed the quantitative thinking and ended up on Wall Street as a result. And so I, I started out in investment banking and, and a little bit of private equity, but ultimately spent my early career in the fund of hedge funds business and was on the investment team of a multi-billion dollar fund of hedge funds that had a diversified portfolio of hedge fund managers and was focused specifically on some of the more dynamic managers that are called the activist managers and really rally for change while taking larger stakes in companies and changing management and cost cutting and make a big fuss. And I can tell you a little bit more about what that really inspired me to think more about. And I I think ultimately, despite the fact that those managers were not really thinking about the social or environmental changes that the companies they were investing in, it did get me thinking about how money could be a force for good. So that was my early career. And what led me to start Beyond Capital was ultimately thinking about how my skills could be utilized in a different way. I have some family upbringing that has lived in Africa, as well as social justice work in the U.S. And I think I really speak the language of justice and equity and equality. And those are what I would call my own core attributes in addition to innovation and leadership and wholeheartedness. And I couldn't think of a better industry to pivot into other than impact investing. And this was in 2009. So it was quite new, I think, to many, many people. I know Acumen had been around for a long time, but I essentially set out to set up a venture capital fund that was centered around a very large market opportunity in what I would call emerging markets, but essentially five countries across East Africa and India and fund businesses that were innovating around basic goods and services and need-to-haves for low-income populations. And that was Beyond Capital. So in the book, you talk about also the impact that your family had on you and the values that you learned from them. Please tell us more about that. I grew up hearing about my family living in Tanzania. I heard this from my grandfather. I heard this from my grandmother. I heard this from my dad. And he had 
eight siblings. So I heard this from all of them. And it was fun to hear about my dad's pet monkey and how my aunts and uncles um, who were born in Africa spoke Swahili as their first language. But I think what I really learned was the possibility of the continent of Africa. And that was almost taught to me on a, you know, unconscious bias level. And so when I started out as an impact investor, I think that the choices I made were very heavily influenced by exposure to the stories and even the recipes and the people that came out of my family living in Africa, including an aunt whose mother died in childbirth and who was adopted by the family and then you know, ended up coming back to the US with the family and lives in Oakland. And while my father's family lived in Africa for about over a decade in the 50s and 60s, so a very long time ago, the legacy really still lives with my family. In fact, to share a personal anecdote, I made my grandmother's curry from Africa a couple days ago. And when I texted my entire family, like my phone just completely blew up afterwards because everybody was so excited about that curry recipe that they loved. So for me, I think the professional choices I made were driven by the awareness that I developed, the view of the opportunity set as not risky, and also perhaps a lower threshold of bias around what it looks like to invest in a continent and in countries that do have large percentages of their population at what would be viewed as low income. And so those three areas are really, I think, critical in what I took out of my family's story. That's really interesting because at UNCDF, we find that one of the biggest obstacles to investors considering least developed countries or the countries where we work, which is Sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia, is that they view them as uniformly risky. But you're saying that because your family had lived there and they were familiar with it, that the familiarity allowed you to see more opportunities than risk. Absolutely. And I think the uniformly risky comment is a cop-out. I really do. And it's because investors do due diligence in order to assess risk. Like any investment, due diligence in the markets where I invest in the the five countries, Kenya, Rwanda, Uganda, Tanzania, and India, where I invest is important. And we've also lived through the past decade of significant bull markets, recovery from the last recession. And we still see how companies in the US and you know, Europe, but particularly funded by VC in the US, are very risky investments. And I think there's a tremendous amount of unhealthy competition and even risks that go beyond just financial risks, but are environmental risks or social risks. And I think they're just not quantified as opportunities in the markets where I invest. And at Beyond Capital, we believe that conscious leadership is essentially the key ingredient to the investments that we make. It's a leader thinking about all stakeholders. And when you start applying that filter to large venture-backed companies like WeWork, they're pretty bad investments. So I love to flip that narrative because I think it's an important mindset shift that we've all created a collective fiction that Africa and India and, and the countries where UNCDF focuses are risky. But in reality, if we just look a little bit deeper, they present tremendous opportunities. 
It's wonderful to hear you say that because, of course, we feel that way, but we have staff in those countries. We work there. We're familiar with them. And one of our frustrations has been trying to express to developed country investors that there are terrific entrepreneurs and amazing opportunities in the countries where we work if they would only be willing to put in some time to look at them, as you're suggesting. So please tell us about conscious leadership. You mentioned a little bit why that's important to you. How do you define it and how do you identify it in the uh, investments that you're looking for? Conscious leaders are leaders that are thinking about all stakeholders. So they're thinking about their shareholders, but they're also thinking about the environment. They're also thinking about their customers, the community, the government around their businesses. And it can extend based on companies perhaps having different areas of focus into other stakeholder groups, perhaps unions in addition to just their employees. But in general, conscious leaders are oriented more towards the benefit for all stakeholders rather than just the benefit for themselves. And the reason that we believe that they are the key ingredient to impact being baked into a business model which is the sweet spot of investing that we like to work within at Beyond Capital is because without thinking about all stakeholders, there are inevitably groups you may not be considered that present significant risks to a business. And also there are a missed opportunity set. So when you think, for example, about how the government can help a business, one example that comes to mind is a portfolio company called Kasha based in Rwanda and Kenya. And Kasha sells women's health products in a discreet and destigmatized way to women and is very smart about their marketing and branding to make their company stand out and not be branded as the period company, as the CEO. CEO likes to put it. But the CEO is absolutely a conscious leader in that she's not only thinking about her customer and their needs, she's thinking about the women that will sell the products to the customer. She's thinking about the government and how the government can help her achieve her business goals. So Kasha is actually one of the first companies ever to receive a online pharmacy license in Rwanda. The business also worked with the Ministry of Health in Rwanda to lower the access age for contraceptives as well. And so they they understand that they need to work hand in hand with all their stakeholders. And there are many examples, I think, across the world where it's just about shareholder primacy. And we've seen how that is absolutely not working. And so I think that if we are going to achieve the SDGs, if we are going to move in a direction where we don't have significant impact trade-offs, the key ingredient is a conscious leader running every business. And so when you talk about stakeholder capitalism, I mean, I think we're hearing more of this now from investors and people in the capital markets. But when you started in 2009, that must have been very different and very radical. So what is the change that you've seen in, say, the last 10 or 11 years in how this type of message is being received by the financial market? Well, I think it does come down to risk mitigation, and that is that is the parlance of the traditional financial world. And I think I speak that language well from my background of doing due diligence. You're talking about the opportunities and you're talking about the risks of that investment. You're always thinking about the upside and you're thinking about the downside. And so I actually think that stakeholder capitalism fits in really well to that mindset because it's very easy to show why focusing on specific stakeholders such as female consumers would be a a massive opportunity and one that is currently not being tapped by all businesses. 
but also how mitigating the governmental impact on your business or even the environmental impact of your business could be seen as mitigating risk in that business, particularly in the long term. And so I think the conversation is absolutely being better received amongst the financial community for that particular reason. I mean, it's really speaking their language. So what problems do you see that could be solved by moving to a 100% impact portfolio approach? Well, I think the first point is impact investing is not just one asset class. So that is something that specific institutions, I think, really need to make sure that they're being clear about and examine that they're not communicating impact as one particular asset class. It takes into account all different types of assets, equity, debt, private investing, venture, you name it. There's, I think now at this point, even hedge funds that are impact oriented. And so because you can align all areas of a portfolio with a particular impact theme and thesis, it really allows for deeper levels of impact. So some of the other sides of the coin of impact can be banking relationships. And what I like to say is where your money sleeps at night and thinking about where your money is being loaned out when you have it simply in a savings account. It could be investing in firms that are in need of a change, but if you are an investor in that firm, you can press for change. You can ask for more. Or even if you're a stockholder, you can vote your proxies. I just voted proxies a couple hours ago today, and I've just decided that I'm really going to vote my values. Two women on a board, one person of color, not enough for me. And so when taking the whole portfolio approach, it really opens up I think, the investor's mindset around how much more good their money can do, put really simply. And it allows for the ability to ask the important questions about your portfolio. So if you're working with an advisor, why don't I have any debt options through your firm? Or if you're working with a, even a robo-advisor online, send an email query and say, do you have sustainable investing that I can add to my portfolio, even if it's not readily available to you? And then zooming out a little bit more, I like to use the term conscious investing rather than impact investing because it's using all the resources that are available to you. And one of the areas in my own portfolio I've started to examine is how is my real estate consistent with my impact goals and my impact thesis? And how does that fit into my portfolio? But also how does my voice, how does my time, how do my relationships and how do my consumer choices fit into my impact thesis as well as a person? So I think that the 100% impact approach goes beyond the portfolio. And that's really where the power I believe is for individuals to become impact investors. Well, thank you for explaining that, especially about the voting your proxies. I've been amazed at how many stock owners, which is anybody who has a pension fund, have no idea about proxies and have never voted a proxy. And um, this has come up in kind of different discussions I've had where at a family office conference recently, someone said, oh, you can't change how corporates behave. If you only own $50 million of their stock, they're never going to listen to you. <laughs> I was like, think about if you voted all your proxies on whatever, what you think is a small amount of money, you could really make a difference. Absolutely. I think collectively we can do a lot. And that's one of the reasons that I wrote my book. As much as I am more institutional venture capital investor in my career, I was sitting at dinner tables in my social life and with my friends and noticing that there was a lack of awareness around what we can all do today 
to make our money more consistent with our values and use our resources to align with our values. And so that's the main reason I wrote the book. The other reason was I saw a greater pace of large banks advertising on Google for impact investing, conscious investing, sustainability, ESG keywords. And I saw that as problematic because I do believe that one of the underlying theses of impact investing is that we are not just being dictated to for what is available to us to invest. We are able to own what we want to invest in and what we truly want to own and know what we own, know that no investment is neutral and have a power in asking for more. And so that's also, I wanted to provide a message that was more open and more inclusive rather than being exclusive for private banks and large wealth holders and billionaires. I wanted impact investing to be a narrative for everyone. And then that brings us to this question that as ESG investing and sustainable investing and impact investing have gotten more popular, there really is an unavoidable phenomenon of greenwashing or impact washing where every financial entity, it seems like now, has some kind of product that they claim is aligned to the SDGs or achieves impact, and some of them really don't. So what can investors do to ensure that their chosen vehicles do achieve real impact? Absolutely. I think Greenwashing is something to look out for. Ultimately, it comes down to asking questions. Learn about how companies that you're investing in behave beyond their marketing behavior, how they treat their employees, how many women and people of color they have in leadership positions, how each company acts as a steward of the environment in their field. And then look at those answers and ask yourself whether each company truly conducts itself in a way that is consistent with your values. I actually did recently ask my bank to tell me how many women or managers of the funds that I own in my portfolio, how many people of color, and the percentages weren't enough for me. And so it's something I'll be you know, looking to change over time. But I do believe it starts with asking questions. There are some other simple ways to ensure that you are perhaps not encountering greenwashing. One of them is to seek out B corporations. That certification does a lot of the work for you. B corporations are also not just investment opportunities, only a handful of them or less are publicly traded, but you can look at your banking relationship because banks can be B corporations. You can look at your wealth advisors. In my online magazine, we did a piece on B corporation wealth advisors. You can look at your consumer choices, again, going to the thinking and the mindset of using all your resources to align with your values. And you can look up any B corporation and see their their score on the B Corporation website. Additionally, there is a standard that is emerging called the Sustainable Accounting Standards Board, and it's also known as SASB. And SASB is something that we should collectively rally to be better utilized by large businesses and put in place as a reporting standard because we do need more. We do need more than just anecdotal social or environmental impact stories, which typically gets relegated to marketing departments and does not really allow for a company to express the holistic impact that it's having. And so perhaps we'll see this coming up on proxies. Right now, it's mostly just board board of directors composition, auditor, and executive compensation. But I think we'll start to see more and more of reporting. And one way to actually try and chip at this block is to say, I know that Deloitte has been involved, for example, in some initiatives around ESG reporting that 
is authentic. And so I'd rather have them than another auditor. And actually, I, I'm pretty confident that Deloitte is the firm, but I would ask everybody to do their own research on that. But I think just doing your homework, asking the questions and knowing who's the leader in ESG accounting could also help, especially if you're looking deeply into your proxies. We have um, encountered SASB many times, and I've been very impressed with the thoughtfulness and the rigor that they're using to construct their SDG indicators. So we see from the UN perspective that there are many financial firms and standards that claim that they're SDG aligned, but it's very hard to see where the impact is especially in poor countries. And SASB, I think, has one of the best approaches to that. And it's also quite empowering what you're saying because you're saying essentially it's not just for financial professionals, it's anyone who is a consumer or an investor or holds assets of any kind. You're putting really the onus on them in a very empowering way, I think, to say, learn what you're buying, right? In the same way that you check the nutrition labels on your family's food or you're seeing where your family's clothing is coming from, take a look at where your money is and what it's doing. Absolutely. Financial professionals should be using one of the handful of excellent firms that has been helping financial firms measure their impact or understand ESG more deeply in order to go deeper here. I think if a financial firm is going at this on their own, I believe that that is problematic and there's likely a reason that they don't want an outside expert to help them. So I think Sustainalytics is one of the leaders. There are other ones, even sitting within some of the big accounting firms that are doing a respectable job. And so that's also why I think that area is actually covered, whereas the individuals probably have to be a little bit more creative. What impact vehicle or investment has most surprised you and why? Two areas I think have really stand out here. One is concessionary returns. I really don't understand them. I don't think they help grow the field of investing with double or triple bottom line intention. And I I think that ultimately they have slowed down the growth of our space because they have perpetuated the narrative that impact means less than market rate return. Now, I agree with the deep impact thinkers and practitioners that we need to rethink market rate to a large extent, but leaving that one particular point aside, making below market loans or investing in a way that is not competitive with more traditional financial markets. In other words, very, very high valuations, not merited by financial projections. We we see this a lot in venture or bidding up markets unnecessarily, I think is all concessionary and it really isn't helping grow healthy businesses that can either produce strong cash flows deep into the future or be acquired and contribute successfully to strategic acquirers and their businesses, or even one day be listed on public exchanges. So that's one area that's really surprised me. And I think I explained why, but I think just in general, it's not a practice that will add up to where we all really want to be with impact investing. The other vehicle and investment instrument that has surprised me is revenue-based financing. I think ultimately it serves the need of the investor first. It is a way of engineering a round trip of capital more quickly than 
and equity, but still with equity-like returns. And typically in venture in the US, it's used when a company isn't raising additional capital. So after B and C rounds, whereas the talk around this structure is often in the very early stages. And um, the argument is also for the entrepreneur founder to not have to give up their equity ownership. That being said, I think that we've seen the dark side of that where it is very onerous on founders because some of the interest rates can seem very high, even though they wouldn't be perceived as an interest rate, they'd be more of a revenue linked payment. And also I think that um, we just have to be very careful about innovating too much. And I think that some of the tools of ventures that are more vanilla still can work quite well, particularly if you have a strong relationship with the management team and that you're not being extractive in being their shareholder. So those are two areas I've always lifted an eyebrow towards. And I think a lot about them and I try to attend as many panel discussions and webinars as possible on those two topics. Concessionary returns doesn't come up very much, but certainly revenue-based financing does because I want to learn more, but I don't, as an investor, see them working very well. That's super interesting. Thanks for talking about that. Where do you see the field of impact investing going in the next five years or 10 years? I mean, in the 11 years or so since you've started, the field has grown so much. What do you think the trajectory is? It's grown, but it hasn't grown enough. And so I think in the next five years, because we have hit a tipping point and that is coming out in not only just the large social and environmental problems we have had to face in the past 12 to 18 months, but also in the data. Impact investing as a field is growing. It's growing quickly and there is a, a greater awareness amongst clients and also banks and institutional investors about the field of ESG. So I do think that in the next five years, ESG becomes mainstream and that will go hand in hand with a rising tide because institutional money pouring in means that more capital needs to be deployed and then there's greater demand for ESG products. And I think that there will be a rising tide of ESG products. And in the next 10 years, I do hope and I believe that the fabric of impact investing will be weaved into all economic transactions. Now, what I mean by that is everything we do will have an option for impact to be integrated into it. And again, going back to the thinking around conscious investing, it's not just our investing, it's our consumer choices, it's our banking relationships. I mean, I've been surprised when on the West Coast to get the Bank of the West advertisements and how they're already catering to the next generation of wealth holders, the millennials, the Gen Z who care about more than just financial return. And so I do think that that will have an impact. It will also put pressure on companies that are not truly walking the talk and might be lightly green, pink, blue washing to do more because they know it will matter and the consumers and investors will vote with their feet. But what we really need to get this right is more diversity on boards in leadership with fund managers and a greater level of conscious leadership across the markets. Absolutely. So what one thing would you change if you could, Eva, to accelerate the growth of this field? Would it be more diversity in boards or would it be a few other things as well? You hit the nail on the head. For me, it would be diversity in company leadership on boards, amongst fund management, and just in general, 
around businesses that are serving the needs of more diverse consumers in more than just their marketing. And I believe this will have a big effect. I don't even think we know the effect it will have on the field of impact investing when we bring diverse opinions to the table. It has not been the case over the past decade. And as a female who is raising her second fund and doing quite well in her fundraise, I speak to others and I know that it's not easy. And I still had to have 250 conversations to get to my first close. But I do know that maybe if I were another gender, things would be a little bit different. And I think it would have been slightly easier for me. So I do think that to me, this is a really important call to action because I'm uncertain whether we will change things in this direction. I think there will be maybe some quotas, which can help. I think that there will be some companies that really get it, but I'm not sure that large companies that are listed on the S&P 500 really have the incentive to truly diversify their leadership and their boards. And until they do, I think it's going to be really hard to see the growth of impact investing in the way that at least as a a deep practitioner, I would like to see. Absolutely. And we know from previous conversations and from following this space that it's less than 3% of all venture capital in the United States goes to female founders. So we admire your raising here and we know the challenges. But at the same time, women in the United States control 85% of their families spend. So if we do take your theory about conscious investing and conscious approach to the markets, Women have tremendous power. And as you say, this this next generation really cares about impact much more than previous ones. And so the amount of wealth that will be controlled by women and younger people in the next 30 years, I think approaches about $30 trillion. So I think it's been really terrific to hear your very empowering thoughts on how each individual consumer, investor, bank account holder, pension fund holder can really start to change this market and that it's really up to all of us to demand the change that we want to see. Absolutely. And I suspect that the listener also works in firms that are either making impact investments or thinking about making impact investments. And in doing so, I think that there's a tremendous opportunity to go above and beyond. One example is we have a conscious leadership scorecard in our due diligence and we score the leadership teams in our early stages of due diligence on how they relate to each stakeholder that they're engaging with. And this is not that complicated. It's a one to five scale. And there are five different categories that we score. And so I think asking for more and maybe elevating those conversations, even within firms, could be really, really powerful. Terrific. Well, thank you so much, Eva, for that and all the specific and actionable advice you gave to our listeners today. Um, Again, this is Eva Yazhari, CEO of the Beyond Capital Fund, co-host of the Beyond Capital podcast and founder of the Conscious Investor Magazine, and also author of a new book, The Good Your Money Can Do. Eva, thanks so much again for being with us today. Thank you, Esther, for this excellent conversation. Thank you to our audience for tuning into UNCDF's podcast, Capital Musings. Once again, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, and our website, www.uncdf.org.